Welcome to Doing Virtue, the Catholic podcast, where virtue is what we do. I'm your host, Anthony Christ. I'm joined in the house tonight, as usual, by my co-hosts, Mark LaRochelle and Brian Hicks. Before we get into the topic tonight and introduce our special guest of honor, we are going to review a drink, talk about a few historical significantly, a few significant historical events that have happened in this past week, um, and a few interesting things before we jump into the topic. So, Mark... Why don't we talk about this booze that you brought? Absolutely. Uh, so we have the the Macallan, twelve year old double cask. I have been told it is the Macallan because uh, my brother in law, uh, when he was in Edin- Edinburgh, Edinburgh, I think it's Edinburgh. Um, he he. I guess his family has had like this um, debate on whether it's called the Macallan or the Macullen, uh, and mm. so he was um, he was like. Uh, I, I don't really know what it is, and in um, in Edinburgh you needed to have your passport in order to get alcohol or something like that. It okay. if you weren't a local, if you weren't a local, you needed to have your passport in order to get alcohol. So he went in and he knew he wasn't going to get any alcohol, but he was like, uh, I just I need somebody to you know we have this dispute going on in our family. Is it, is it called this or that? And and uh, she the lady she like said it's the Macallan. And then she, and then as he was about to leave, he said, she was like, hold on. And she, and he, she brought up like this really, really expensive whiskey and like had him try it. Uh, It was just amazing. Anyway, just all that's to say. It wasn't this, that was something else. Yeah, it was something else. (laughs) Something better. But it is the McAllen, not the McCullen. So, awesome. So, why don't you pour it at the end? I give some discuss, some information. Um, The color of it is the Harvest Sun. (laughs) <laughs> which uh, obviously ob- what else could it be it looks like a medello that's <laughs> uh and the aroma is a creamy butterscotch with a hint of toffee toffee apple it's all one word toffee apple candied orange vanilla custard and newly felled oak wow so poetic boom yeah i made that up on the spot um, that's really impressive Mark. <laughs> i just tasted it and I, and I just like macaroni <laughs> Uh, and then the palate is deliciously honeyed ginger and citrus balanced with raisins and caramel. And then Love the it. finish is oak lingers, warm, sweet, and drying. Mark, I think you went to the McInerney School of Whiskey Description. What did he say? He took he, he took a sip <laughs> and said, this is like simple but precocious or something <laughs> like that. And we were all like, okay, yeah, no. sure. No, I agree just with him. Just what well, I exactly. was thinking. <laughs> no, he goes, he goes, yeah, you should just put two words that kind of mean different things but are kind of... Uh, like intellectual words, and then that's what it is. There you go. <laughs> so, oh my goodness, they. Anything else on that? Yes, 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 okay. yes, yes. The Macallan has six pillars by which their whiskey is formed, <laughs> um, and they have a little. They have like a little uh, a description. Okay. From our spiritual home in Speyside, our curiously small stills distill the finest cut before matru- matura- maturation. 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 In exceptional oak casks, these casks deliver the natural color, aromas, and flavors of our peerless spirit. Man, spirit twice. Why don't they just make that like one sentence? Why is it six pillars? I think it is one It's six sentence, pillars, just... Anthony. All right. Okay. <laughs> Not going to dispute it. To the Scots. Scots. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. That counted. Cheers. <laughs> um, all right, so before we get into the topic of the evening... Um, I wanted to talk about a couple of things quickly. Um, first, this past 
um, week. On September 8th, we celebrated the birthday of Mary. So that's a pretty big feast day in the church. Um, also, earlier this week was the anniversary of the Battle of Vienna, which took place on September 12th, 1683. Uh, the Ottomans were trying to take over Europe, and they were stopped by the Holy Roman Empire and the Polish. One of the main uh, factors in that battle going uh, favorably towards the Holy Roman Empire was the Polish cavalry, not Calvary, that's where Christ died, cavalry, um, <clears throat> uh, named the Winged Hussars. Uh, so they were a Polish group of horseback riders. For more information on the Winged Hussars, I would recommend going and listening to the Catholic Man Show. They have an episode on it, and uh, they're such big fans of the Winged Hussars that they actually released their own wine called the Hussar Wine. It's a red wine aged in... Um, I think in bourbon barrels. So it's kind of a cool wine. I don't know if it's still available, but it was a few years ago. So that's uh, kind of an interesting thing. Uh, For books about Vienna, uh, Mark bought one book. Uh, I'm going to mention two other ones. And before I get further, he's going to read a quote from that book. dear. (laughs) Um, I'll mention the two books first, though. So Mm -hmm. one of them is called The Siege of Vienna by John Stoy. And another one is called Enemy at the Gate by Andrew Wheatcroft. Um, And then the book that Mark bought is called it's it's called the battle of vienna 1683 the history and legacy of the decisive conflict between the ottoman turkish empire and the holy roman empire by charles river charles river okay mouthful. Yeah. um <laughs> yep I'm while you're pulling, <laughs> while you're pulling up that quote uh an interesting picture i saw if you want to visualize the winged hussars it's there's a painting called the hetzman guard by w polizek which i'm assuming is a polish last name and I don't know if I said it correctly, but it's a pretty sweet picture of a Polish guard on horseback with the big metal wings coming out. And I heard a story, <clears throat> and I won't get into the details too much, but um, I think that the wings will, were dual purpose. The one purpose is because it makes this sound, which would make, when the horse riders are coming over the hill, it makes it more intimidating because it makes more noise than what's actually there. But I also heard that because this is the 1600s, muskets had recently been invented and they were having problems with the horses getting scared of the muskets. So they created it. So it was like virtual white noise. And so Mm. the horses would focus on that noise because it was consistent. And then when the, I guess when the guns were going off, it didn't affect them as much. And Um, also with that, I'm pretty sure it was, it would also make the horses go faster because it actually scared them. Interesting. Yeah. So, so I guess they're being scared by one thing rather than the other, but every time... A Polish soldier gets his wings. A horse goes faster. I don't know. I remember something that one. Yeah, 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 pretty yeah, sure yeah, that's yeah, Proverbs yeah. 27. I, I was going to say Frank Capra. Yeah. Do you have that quote? Oh, boy. I know it's it's kind of a dark quote, though. But That's okay. Uh, I love it. Um, so this is uh, the declaration of war from the, the Sultan, Mehmed IV, to the Habsburgs. Um, so this is in February. So whatever, eight. Eight months before uh, the the uh, the Battle of Vienna, um, and he said, "I declare to you, I will make myself your master, pursue you from east to west, to trample upon all that is pleasant and accessible to your eyes. I resolve to ruin you and your people, and to leave your empire a commemoration to my dreadful sword. I will establish my religion and pursue your crucified God, whose wrath I do not fear. I will put your sainted priests to the plow." I will rape your women, forsake your God, your religion, or I will order that you be consumed in fire. So pretty, pretty heavy words. Um, wow. So it's pretty awesome that they got destroyed. But yeah. Dang. Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> Wing has for, for more, uh, one, one other thing before we move on to the next um, historical event. There's a, a song 
uh, called the Winged Hussars by a Swedish metal band named Sabaton. Is that how you pronounce it? I think oh, yeah. Sabaton, oh, yeah. uh, which was released in 2016 on their album called Last Stand. So that's uh, pretty, a pretty cool song to look into. It's legit. Um, it's pretty legit. It is. It is. <clears throat> um, that, so that victory resulted in um, the Pope declaring that day um, in honor of our, I guess it became Holy, Holy Name of Mary. Um, because the Battle of Lepanto became Our, Our Lady of Victory and then later became Our Lady of the Rosary. Um, so also this week, um, which happened much later in history, but earlier than September 12th was on September 11th, which was the 9-11 attacks that happened um, where over 3,000 people died. Um, and so a lot more could be said about those things, but um, I think it's important to think about the, <clears throat> the narrative of Islamic terrorism that started all the way back at the Battle of Lepanto and continued through the Battle of Vienna and continued through the 9-11 attacks and is still very much alive today. Um, and there's, there's several good books that I wrote down to look into that more. Um, one of them is called Sword and Scimitar by Raymond uh, Ibram. Uh, there's another one called um, Islam at the Gate by Diane Moskar. And I had one more... Um, where is it? I'm not sure where. I guess it's down here. Um, a few more actually. Um, the first one is kind of an overview of Islam. It's called Sword of the Prophet by Sergei Trivkovic. Um, and then if you want to delve into the actual um, different historical events that involve uh, Islam, there's a book on the Crusades by Thomas Madden and another one called What Were the Crusades by Jonathan Riley Smith. And and then if you want to look at the uh, religion of Islam and Catholicism paired not just Islam versus the Holy Roman Empire, Islam versus um, the United States. You can look at it from a different perspective. There's a book called Faith, Reason, and the War Against Jihadism by George Weigel. So I'd recommend all those books. I haven't read all of them, but I've had people recommend them to me, so I assume that they're worth recommending. Um, the To quickly go back to the Battle of Vienna, <clears throat> one of the results of the Battle of Vienna was that um, the Christians came across coffee, and it had it had been in the Western world, but the Muslims, it seems, were the kind of the original um, creators, and they they became masters of uh, roasting and made it kind of a wholesale item that it wasn't before. Um, so when the Christians defeated the Muslims at the Battle of Vienna, they started drinking the coffee as like partially plunder of war. They like you know, take the spoils, but also kind of to put it in their face that we're like, we're drinking your drink. Um, and there was something that devolved or um, evolved because of that. Yeah, Brian, do you want to talk about that real quick? Sure. It's uh, it's actually the croissant. Um, so there, there's okay. actually... No, that was it. The, yeah. The, <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> All right, and we're not. No, no, and I'll be super brief, but um, I the, the legend goes, and I looked it up online and that's what they call it. They kind of call it a, a, a legend. But um, the legend goes that after the um, uh, the Battle of Vienna and uh, the Turks lost, um, there were French bakers in Vienna. And so it goes that because... So on the flag, it had a crescent uh, for the Ottomans. And so they they made a pastry that made it look like they were eating. They were like, haha, we beat you guys. Just a mockery. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Uh, but so I looked into it a little more. It is, it sounds like it is a legend. First, there were, it started out as cookies. 
um, like crescent cookies that were Austrian, but also in Austria. Um, and then supposedly, actually, it was later that it ended up becoming what we know as croissants. Mm. Um, but uh, on, but I'm not really sure. It, I, I'm, but again, it, it didn't even start in France. It actually started in Austria, which is pretty interesting. Yeah. And it started from a cookie and then became this, mm-hmm. this yeah. amazing thing. But that's really cool. That's all. So uh, one other thing uh, about the Battle of Vienna, it... I was looking into it a little bit about coffee, and apparently uh, the co- coffee made it all the way to the Vatican, and the Pope's advisors were really hesitant to, like, um, actually, they were they were very excited, and um, they were really pushing to ban it. They were like, this is, like, a, the devil's drink. Like, we don't want anything to do with the Muslims. Like, we need Amen. to ban this. So the, but I the, still but think the that. But <laughs> the Pope wanted to try it. Drink it. So um, Pope Clement VIII, he tries it. He, he gets them to make it for him. He tries it. And he likes it. And so he says, quote, this is the devil's drink, but it's delicious. So we should cheat the devil and baptize it. So he was like pro, just like, well, this is good. So we should just take it away from him. Um, There's actually, there's kind of a a fuller story on that, on a website uh, by the Catholic gentleman. And they have a blog entitled Blessed Beans, How the Pope Baptized Coffee. So it gives a little bit more background if anyone's interested in looking into that. Um, Now, lastly, today is the feast of the exaltation of the Holy Cross um, found in the Holy Land by St. Helena. Um, And then that kind of became sponsored by Constantine, her son. Christendom College has a small piece of the cross, which I believe they put out exposed today for students to uh, venerate. Um, And it's kind of a dual feast for Christendom because it's also the 46th uh, anniversary of Christendom's founding, um, primarily led by Dr. Warren Carroll. So that's a pretty big day for the campus as well. Um, And if anyone wants to look up pictures of the founders one of our alumni uh vincent duig drew five pictures of all of the founders uh that they posted online but you can <clears throat> i think you can, the I, th- I think yeah, they're in the chapel and you can also i think yeah, you can also that. buy uh, copies or prints of them um as well so that's, that's all i had to say about this week well fascinating now a we are going to introduce good, our guest it's a pretty good uh segue into our guest because christina because christina <laughs> um so uh we have on Dr. Kathleen Sullivan. Hello. Um, hey, hey. She, she is a, an assistant or an associate professor? Assistant. Assistant professor. Assistant okay. to sorry. the... Sorry, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, right. <laughs> assistant to the... Pro- no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> assistant professor of English language and literature at Christendom. Um, she got her bachelor's at TAC mm-hmm. in California and then got her master's in English at U- the University of Dallas. And okay, then so legitimate. Good eventually, <laughs> eventually her PhD from CUA. In English, um, and and now she teaches freshmen and upper levels in literature, um, and yep. we're having her on to talk about Jane Austen. That's so exciting! Thanks, guys. Yeah. <laughs> really well, glad to be here. So we can we can kind of just before we get into that, um, if you want to just I guess talk about um, I guess how you I mean how you got out here to Christendom, mm-hmm. but then also I guess along the way, I'd imagine that Jane Austen got a yeah. pretty big part in your life. So. Sure, sure, absolutely. Uh, well, I'll go back to where I'm from, which is New Hampshire, and affectionately, I call it the Shire. <laughs> <laughs> go home to visit the Shire. And uh, yeah, so during high school, kind of looking around and found Thomas Aquinas, and they had a summer program, which was just game-changing. I remember going out, it was a two-week program, and my high school, you know, it's the typical high school, you study, you take the quiz, you take the test, 
and it's mostly just note taking in class. So I had never experienced the seminar style of discussion, which is what TAC does. And it's kind of shy in high school and going out to the program, it didn't say a single word for the entire first week in class. It's a oh two week gosh. program. Right now I'm like, blah, 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 chat, chat, chat. <laughs> but I, you know, it was just intimidating and all these other students, they were saying brilliant things and what can I contribute? And I didn't know what to say and very much enjoyed the readings, but I, I just didn't know how to put myself out there in the class discussion. And then one of the evenings, I remember walking back to the commons and just kind of chatting with one of the summer workers. So he wasn't working the program, he was he was there um, working on campus over the summer. And you know, oh, how's the summer program going for you? I'm like, oh, fine. What do you enjoy about it? Oh, I don't know, everything. And then he's like, well, tell me something you really do enjoy. It doesn't have to be about the program. And I was like, my family. And he's like, great, great. So what's so, what's so wonderful about your family? I was like, well, I love them. They love me. And he's like, all right, well, so what do you think it is about love that makes this something? And we, I didn't even realize it, but now reflecting back, I was like, ooh, he did the Socratic <laughs> discussion very well. And I just remember I had this great conversation and other students came by and joined in and talked about the nature of family and friendship and love. And I distinctly remember going back to the dorm that evening and saying to myself, I have to come here. Mm-hmm. And it just it just lit a fire in me in a way that I just hadn't experienced in my education before of, wow, first of all, I am responsible. Like I can I can put in my own thoughts and and. Uh, ask questions and try to get to the understanding of the why, why we are drawn to certain things, what are the good things in life. And yeah, I just, I was just really inspired. And the next week I spoke up in class (laughs) and um, it just, yeah, it was just an experience that showed me how valuable. I remember going to see the two towers and I'm watching the scene where I'm forgetting the king's name, but his son is brought back, Eowyn's brother. Mm-hmm. Yep. What's his name? Theodred. Yes, thank you. And he's weeping at the funeral. And I remember, again, having this moment in the movie theater, like, am I experiencing catharsis right now? <laughs> Should I pity him? Um, am I am I moved by this? Why am I moved by this? And and I just I also then had the subsequent thought. Oh no, <laughs> is this going to be my life forever? <laughs> that I'm constantly questioning and and seeking to know the nature of why I'm experiencing a certain reaction or, or things like that. So anyway, yeah. Um, moving on from TAC, I uh, the program there is liberal arts and it's a set curriculum. And so we do obviously read some literature. And we read Jane Austen. We actually read Emma. And I obviously grew up loving literature and um, always wanted to talk more about it. So after TAC, I was thinking, okay, what do I, you know, where do I see myself going next? And applied to uh, graduate programs in literature. Um, and it was just, again, the kind of eye opening to be able to now go in such depth in a particular field that I greatly enjoyed mm-hmm. um, because there, there aren't majors at TAC other than 
the liberal arts. Mm-hmm. You're graduating in liberal arts. So yeah, went to UD. That was great. And then in between UD and Catholic University, so in between my master's and my doctorate, I worked for a school. I taught for a year in Maryland. I taught at a grammar school, just sixth and seventh grade religion, <laughs> just kind of a job in between that transition while I was finishing my master's thesis. And that was fun. <laughs> also very growing. Um, I encourage anybody who's like, wants to grow in discipline and whatnot, um, go teach at a grammar school. <laughs> you will, you'll greatly learn your strengths and you'll greatly learn your weaknesses. But it was, it was overall just super joyful. So I had the sixth and seventh graders for religion. And again, still things like come back in my memory and I chuckle. And I, I always, I'll remember this one quiz I had given them on Noah's Ark. We were working our way um, through some of the key Bible stories. And I had asked a question on a quiz, like, what did Noah do after? They, like, after, you know, the dove came back and they landed. And the, the proper answer was he offered a sacrifice right. to God. Right. right. Uh, <laughs> My student wrote as the response, Noah sacrificed all the animals. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, (laughs) let's go back to the story. (laughs) Anyway, so things like that. It was just joyful, um, joyful, very, yeah, like I said, again, very much a growing time. And then I applied to graduate schools and then from there went on to Catholic University And that was really amazing because since I already had my master's, I could teach immediately. So while I was getting classes and working on my, um, finishing my PhD, I was also teaching at, um, at Catholic U. Mm. So they had, you know, the regular one-on-one introductory literature courses, English courses. But one of my favorite ones was I was able to teach a course called the literature of fantasy. Mm. So we read, we read actually Midsummer Night's Dream, Mm. And then uh, Narnia book and oh gosh, I'm forgetting the others, but I'll always remember um, I had a student who he came up to me after the first day and he said, I'm a politics major, but I had to fulfill a literature requirement. So I have to take your class, but I have to let you know. I'm not a fan of reading non-important books. <laughs> wow. I read political books and biographies. I was like, okay, okay, well, well, you know the requirements. You've got to read all the books here. And and um, he wasn't super invested in the class, but I do remember when we were going through the Narnia book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, because... There's that scene when Eustace has been turned into a dragon because of his greediness, and he's in pain, and Aslan comes, and Aslan has him bathe in the waters, and then he, Aslan like tears off the mm-hmm. dragon skin, and it's so painful. And I remember reading that out loud in class, and we were discussing kind of the baptismal, you know, significance there. And the student was was alert <laughs> and invested, and he was asking questions. And I was just like thinking internally, like, okay, God, you know, like at least you know he's seeing the value that literature isn't just entertainment, mm. and it doesn't actually serve a deeper spiritual purpose. So. He had very distinct handwriting, and usually at the end 
of the course you don't get your teacher evaluations until the next semester and by then i'm like i don't know who any of these <laughs> students are you don't, you can't tell the handwriting but his handwriting was very distinct and you know i saw it and i was like oh dear you know what is he gonna say about this course of unimportant books <laughs> and he wrote he wrote this was a good class it had way too much reading <laughs> and he wrote i think um, Miss Sullivan was the first truly Catholic teacher I had at the school. Whoa. I know. I know. That's you. Oh, my yeah. goodness. Yeah, and as a senior, yeah. A senior. Yeah. Anyways, oh. I mean, Catholic year was great. I don't no want to. Yeah, but, 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 but I think it was probably he hadn't experienced approaching literature through the light of Christ. Mm. And I, I always tried to do that when we're talking about, you know, obviously you approach the work, it's an intellectual object, you're approaching it, you know, let's see how it is as a work of art. Um, and then, well, okay, what else is there? Like what true, good, beautiful thing, um, perhaps that God is trying to reveal to us through this work of art. So yeah, anyway, just grateful that he was able to find some good from yeah. that. No, true. Do you think yeah. that Catholics are guilty of reading into yeah. literature yeah. too much or maybe like sidestepping the obvious like catholic hint that's there but going way deeper and being like okay well clearly this is like an analogy about baptism and you're mm -hmm. like well is there evidence of that like was the writer catholic right. does that even add up with what's going on yes no that's such a good question i think there is a tendency for us to you know maybe miss the fact that this is a work of art and it and it exists there for us to examine um, intellectually and just search for Catholic symbols and, and kind of impose on it. Um, but yeah, if the reading lends to that type of an understanding, so we always just talk about what do we know by nature and by nature, water can cleanse and it can nourish and it can refresh and okay, well then what do we see by this tearing away of a dragon skin? So the nature of a dragon, just traditionally, not that, you know, we're observing dragons every day, but um, just through through historical literary tradition, dragons are fearsome terrors and they're um, hoarders and of treasure. Anyway, so I kind of operate on that level of what do we know just based on our on our observation of the evidence in the text. And then if a deeper, more spiritual reading is present then we'll un then we'll unpack that and um yeah usually usually great works of literature will will have that will have that layer um spiritual truth before we get into how you yeah. ended up at christendom yeah. just while we're <clears throat> on the topic of dragons do you think <laughs> that something i've heard jordan peterson say and a couple of other um like catholics not that jordan peterson is catholic but uh -huh. other separately catholic speakers say is that we don't have enough stories with dragons in them anymore mm. and that we kind of like i think we <clears throat> we approach evil in a very um careful way and we kind of step around it or we say like recently disney has been doing this thing mm -hmm. where they'll be making movies about how the villain actually had a really rough childhood totally. and so their actions may be justified or yes they're acting out it wasn't good that they killed that person but also 
they were abused. You can't and it's blame like, them. Yeah. But right, you yeah. can't blame them, and it's a it's a very like victim centered. Mm-hmm. Do you think that society and maybe particularly men would benefit from fairy tales mm-hmm. more if good and evil was portrayed in a much more? There's a dragon. He's evil. And we need to defeat him, and this is a good thing to save the town or save the girl or whatever. Is that something that you think is 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 missing from society, and yes. something that we should try to somehow like return to? Yes. No. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I don't know exactly when historically that shift of you know defending the evil or showing well we can excuse and if we understand what's going on, then we'll excuse the evil. And then all of a sudden today, we're obviously celebrating the evil and not even calling it evil. Um, So there's a huge value to going back to those traditional fairy tales where the clarity is right there. Mm -hmm. Good, evil, good will vanquish evil. Mm -hmm. And, And yeah, and so... Yeah, I always think I love Ratatouille. <laughs> the music is great, but I but I have a problem. Like probably the most repulsive thing to find in your kitchen <laughs> is a rat. And now we're like, oh, but he's I a good want. Cook. I know he's a great cook. I'm like, I want the rat in my kitchen. And so, yeah, that's that, that's the type of thing where you're just like, I see what you're doing. Mm. Um, Do you think that's an that's attempt really to? make something that's normally like gross and icky Uh good or do you think that that's a way to just i don't know like creatively tell a story because i don't think that they're other than rats in real life being like carriers of disease and gross there's nothing particularly like evil about i mean i guess Mm -hmm. i guess rats in literature are shown as evil but usually it's like snakes and dragons Mm -hmm. and um like wolves and spiders Mm -hmm. and things like that are shown as evil so do you think that that's kind of a direct trying to change the narrative of saying that rats are good? Or do you think that that's just Disney or like kind of just animation studios ways of yeah. kind of just making you sympathize with whatever they feel like? Yeah. Yeah. Know? Maybe a little bit of both there, but, um, cause there's definitely a benefit. Um, you know, say, say your, your kid is terrified of dogs and like, well, let's read the pokey little puppy story and look, I don't know, maybe it can frame, we can reframe, something that shouldn't be feared in a way that you can find sympathy with. Um, but yeah, I think there, I think probably maybe subtly behind the scenes, maybe not so behind the scenes anymore. There are those attempts to actually take something which we shouldn't welcome into our lives or our thoughts or imaginations and portray it in a way that now we're more receptive to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's where the danger can come and where literature is so powerful uh, because it good literature, good art should engage the imagination. Um, we talk about this a lot in class of obviously you want to know the good so you can pursue it. But how do you get someone to desire and actually, mm. pursue, like, actually pursue the good? Well, you know, we're, we're imitative beings. Like, let's portray a story where you're inspired by some character who is going out there, saving the world, slaying the dragons, etc. And you're like, I want to be like that. So I was reading this critic who is saying, um, st- uh, children aren't asking, how do I be good? Or um, what's the way in which I be good? But they, but they ask, how do I become like so-and-so? You know, how do I become like... Uh, Peter, Susan, Lucy, and Edmund, for example. So giving them a concrete image 
then they can, I'm quoting this critic and I forget his name, but they can try on, he calls it a wardrobe of images, a wardrobe mm. of your imagination. So you try on that knightly suit of armor or you try on, um, you know, whatever it might be. And you're like, yes, I can visualize myself in this mm -hmm. because I've lived through it through the story. Mm -hmm. And then you're going from knowing what's good to now desiring it. You want those traits too. Right. Yeah. So with fairy tales, one of the things that I've found is, a, or fairy tales, but then also just like great literature. And yes. Especially being at Christendom, so many people are well-read. Mm. Um, and they've had it also through their childhood and everything. Um, is, and I, but, but also when we get older, there is kind of a part of us that kind of, whether we, whether we want to or not, kind of loses that innocence to be mm -hmm. able to like sit down and read a fairy tale. Yes. Um, is there, I guess I'm, I'm kind of talking <laughs> or I'm kind of asking because I find, I almost find like, I'm asking almost from a personal standpoint. You go because, for it. Why because, not? <laughs> because I, so I'm, I wouldn't say, I, I would say I've, I like reading and I want to read, but there is a lot of fairy tales like the grim fairy tales mm -hmm. and there are a lot of just the hans anderson fairy tales mm -hmm. that i've never read mm -hmm. but is that do you think i guess extrapolating to a general if people are not don't they're not exposed to that when they're younger should they read these mm -hmm. things and then kind of go up from there or is it like oh we can read jane austen and we can almost find the same thing or like yeah I guess. no that's a great question so actually i have a book it's mostly book lists, but it's called Before Austin Came Aesop. Mm. So before you you read a Jane Austen, go read Aesop's mm, Fables, okay. read the fairy tales. And his point was, um, and, and I'll get to your point too. So yes, sure. go back and read the fairy tales, so okay. short answer. <laughs> sure. but, but more in the sense of when you are reading those fairy tales, you know, you're kind of getting used to that imaginative living and that okay. kind of vicarious living in the story and then um if you've been used to for example um, so i'm also currently teaching a course on children's literature at christendom and we just we're in the midst of the wind and the willows and it, okay. if you've read it kenneth graham is so poetic i mean he has sentences that are half a page long and mm. it's so descriptive and all these beautiful subordinating clauses <laughs> and prepositional phrases and it's i love it and i i remember reading somebody who was commenting on Kenneth Graham, like if you've fed your child, so to speak, if you fed your child the wind in the willows when he's young, he'll be more apt to seek Charles Dickens mm. or Dostoevsky even, or even Tolkien, who's super descriptive as well. Mm. Um, but yeah, so even if you didn't grow up on the fairy tales and the traditional stories, um, go back now. I will quote C.S. Lewis, someday you will be old enough to read fairy tales again. Mm. And that, I think, can resonate so much because um, we have so much more experience to bring into the fairy tale or the children's book that we are, through our memories, perhaps, of what we've experienced when we've battled you know, our various dragon, um, through that memory, then we are refreshed and okay. restored. So... For my students reading The Wind in the Willows, there's this beautiful chapter called uh, The Sweetness of Home. 
I won't say it in Latin, although Kenneth Graham in Tuttle's in Latin. What is it? It's like Dolce Domum or something. And a lot of my students currently are seniors. And they were just saying while reading that as a senior, it's, it's Ratty and Mole had gone to visit their friend the Badger in the woods in the winter. And they're heading back. And Mole, it's characterized as he, he feels this electric shock to him. And he realizes that he's passing by his home which he hasn't been to in a while because he's been living on the riverbank and they've been having a wonderful summer and in the winter they're spending time with their other friends in the woods. And so he hasn't been to his home in a while. And just when he passes by the path in the woods, it again, it's characterized as, as this calling out of like, mm-hmm. come back and return. And it's beautifully portrayed. Um, and you know, he goes back and tells his friend, like, we have to go back. And anyways, it's, it's so moving. So, thinking about that element um, as you're reading it as an adult, you know, you're older and you think about, gosh, like sometimes I do feel that longing for home, like that, that nostalgia to go back to home, which you obviously can't ever go back to the past. So what it can do is that it can remind you of, well, what's the next home Mm -hmm. that I long for? Um, So, so that, nostalgic longing for something of childhood that you're reading as an adult through a children's book can actually be this prayer of now transitioning of, oh, okay, what I'm truly longing for is the home, like the the Mm. eternal home. And so, yeah, so that type of experience that you can gain through reading a kid's book, I think is is of such value. Um, I don't know, sometimes I... I, I even feel like, gosh, is this academic enough? We're, <laughs> we're reading Alice in Wonderland and The Wizard of Oz in college. Like, is this allowed? Are other people going to be like, oh, you're reading children's books? Well, I'm reading cons and <laughs> I don't know. And so some of my students, too, they're just like, I, I was, you know, one of the girls, she was like, all of her other uh, sweet mates were busily working on, you know, some... <laughs> Very intellectually challenging where she's like, well, I'm off to read The Wizard of Oz. Oh, like what what work I have ahead of me. And um, <laughs> Off to read The Wizard. The wonderful hey, wizard. <laughs> well done. Um, but then another student just recently said, she said she's so glad she's required to read these stories because she hadn't right. growing up. And because our time is so limited and we have so many interests, if you have a couple of hours on a afternoon are you gonna go and pick up alice in wonderland probably not are you gonna go pick up hans christian probably not so she said like this has been a great benefit to be in a stage where i have to read this and now kind of seeing the the beauty and the joy within um also realism too um for as much as it's i mean there's death, violence, separation, loss, abandonment in, in all these stories, but um, the key element of a fairy tale and the key element of a children's story, the traditional fairy tales at least, there is a happy ending. Right. You just, no matter how dark the woods are, you know, no matter how crazy the cyclone is, um, you're going to get back home. Right. So there's a, a sure walking forward through the unknown in these stories because you, yeah, you are confident it's going to end well. Um, yeah. Well, no, one of the things I find, or that what you just said that I definitely kind of um, agree with is 
I'm glad there are books that we are required. Like we have four classes of required reading for literature that I'm so grateful for because I wouldn't have read or even tried to have read the Bible. The catechism. Can I just say Christ taught in parables? This is true. (laughs) No, no, truly. But but getting, having the student or just having myself being able to be just yeah almost I, like justified in reading something that you right. know, otherwise right. you don't yes. feel like right. you're wasting your time yeah right. and, then, and then you're also kind of almost spurred on to want to mm-hmm. do that more mm-hmm. um which i've appreciated so much yeah it's like a, almost an embarrassment of like mm. oh no they might catch me like i'm reading <laughs> yeah, a, yeah. the jungle put book. another book behind it yes <laughs> yes all the things Tolstoy, war and peace yeah. oh yes yes Dostoevsky, <laughs> like but yeah, no, I, yes, to your point, yeah, very, it's a, it's a benefit, um, being able to come back to it, kind of, if you've already read it, but then also with that, being able to be surprised by how right. rich these, um, seemingly simplistic stories are. Yeah, uh, yeah I think Dr. Cutterback released a couple of weeks ago, I think, he released, um, there's like a, a book list that his wife Sophia came up with on, like, books that your kids should read nice. and i don't know how closely that's related to john senior's list because i think yep. he has a list of a thousand books mm-hmm. um and it's broken down by ages i think a lot of the books um that he mentions for kids like are very similar to what she says with like you know winnie the pooh and mm-hmm. um beatrix Potter, probably right <clears throat> um and not as much just like you know dr seuss and yes. which i don't think are bad but in mm-hmm. terms of like timeless classics that are out there. These are things you Dr. should read. Dr. Seuss is a timeless um, Well, not according to John Sr. So, uh, yeah, it wasn't on the list. It wasn't on the list, <laughs> buckaroo. Um, but it made me think that um, it's kind of an interesting insight because you were saying that students at Christendom mm-hmm. are grateful that they're kind of forced to read these books. Yep. Um, even though they maybe chose the class or chose to be an English major, they're forced to read these books that they wouldn't otherwise but it's also interesting to think about if you put yourself in a position, even if you don't go to school, if you put yourself in a position to either make a list and go read these books, you can, mm-hmm. or put yourself in a position where you're babysitting your nieces and nephews or your younger siblings, or you have kids of your own. And then that's the opportunity that you get to, and maybe it's the first time you've read the book. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really beautiful thing. And I, I think a lot of, um, I think most parents would say, that the idea of sitting in their living room reading books out loud to their kids is like top-notch yes. quality time. Oh, yeah. And maybe watching a good movie with your kids is up there too. Mm-hmm. But because you can you can read, maybe you've read it before, maybe you haven't, but you get to read a book and you get to experience your side of it and you're kind of picking up on all of the true, true things that are applicable to real adult human life and mm-hmm. suffering. And then your kids are getting it at a, their intake is at a very minimal level. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of see the disparity and also the beauty in either the depth of the work or what they're picking up. And I don't know, there, there's kind of like an interesting play there uh, that you might get as a student for sure, because you're going through it with other people and actually like breaking it apart, which you're probably not doing when you're reading to your kids, but also when you're reading with your kids or uh, someone else's kids, there's kind of like this really simplistic approach that maybe you kind of overlook because you start analyzing it and they just look at it as like a simple good and bad. Yes, um, yes. Anyway, there's probably more to be said about that. I just, yeah. just crossed my mind. No, it's it's so true. First of all, the value of reading out loud, that just cannot be duplicated. Um, there, was, there was another comment on the Wind in the Willows, um, the 
son of the illustrator of Goodnight Moon. <laughs> I have this book okay. entitled Everything I Need to Know in Life I Learned Through a Children's Story. But he said that in college, just he, uh, he and some friends, they gathered. It was probably like a you know wintry evening. They gathered in the room, all cramped around, and they read out loud The Wind in the Willows. And he said it just kind of cast this enchantment over the group. Um, yeah, there, there's something about that sharing of engaging in your senses with something that is beautiful and something that resonates in a way different from a movie. And I think too, nowadays, because movies are so popular, we're all like, oh, I know the story of Cinderella. I know the story of I don't know, the Little Mermaid or something. And then you go back to the original. So the Hans Christian Andersen Little Mermaid, I mm-hmm. get so frustrated by the... Disney movie for multiple reasons, but also because in the story, she wants to be human, not necessarily to get the guy to, to marry the prince, but because she wants a human soul. Right. She wants to be immortal. Mm. And then she actually doesn't even marry the prince. She He falls in love with the other girl, which is part of it. It's in the movie. And then um, she's told by the sea witch or whoever, you know, enchants her, well, you have to kill him in order for you to regain, you know, your whatever, all the things. Um, and so she she doesn't because she sees how happy he is. And so she dissolves into sea foam for a thousand years. And then after a thousand years of this suffering, so to speak, she does attain a soul. She attains mm-hmm. immortality. And I'm like, wow, that's a whole nother level and depth right. that the movie is just kind of like, oh, love story. <laughs> and we're like, no, we're talking about immortality here. And, <laughs> right. um, and the other Hans Christian one, too, is the Snow Queen, where mm-hmm. part of the little girl's quest to save her friend who's had his heart frozen by... Uh, the ice, the the ice that distorts all good into evil, and he, his heart is slowly getting frozen. And part of her quest, she has to rearrange these pieces of ice. I think it's ice, and they spell out the Our Father. Mm. I'm just like that's oh yeah, and that, and, she, be, and that became Frozen. Is that uh, right? Yeah, is that what Frozen? Well, the <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, that's frozen, kind of the main plot. It is that the heart gets frozen. Um, the the original fairy tale has hmm. seven seven parts of it's a very long quest and full of random things. But yes, I think the Disney Frozen is based on that. Hmm. Um, but obviously oh, taking. But they left out the Our Father. Everything yeah, else yeah, yeah. left out. And the guardian the angel. She has like a guardian angel army helping her save her little friend. It's. That's yeah, amazing. Really yeah, good. yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. That, that is so lost from, from yeah. all the movies. And, yeah, man. But, Before yeah. we get into yeah. literature a little bit more, can we just talk about um, how you ended up at Christendom? Yeah, yeah, Was that of just happenstance? Was that yeah. something you pursued? Yeah, no. How um, unhappy are you there? No, <laughs> I love it. Uh, totally providential. Uh, so at Catholic University, after finishing all of my course requirements and working on the dissertation, you're, of course, applying in all these various places and then end up getting a job at a high school. And then still through connections from TAC, I was um, asked to join uh, Chelsea Academy down the road. And so that was really great. And then I applied to teach one just adjunct mm-hmm. at Christendom. So I was like, you know, however long it can work. and And then... Um, I was able to now apply for the full-time position and I I say it was providential because so it was at that point I was teaching full I was teaching at Christendom but I was also part-time at Chelsea 
and applying to teach full-time at Crescentum. So through that process, which is very intense and very involved, um, and the actual interview process is two full days of you give a lecture attended by your potential future colleagues, and then you are teaching a class that's observed also by your potential future department and any other professors who are able to attend um, various meetings throughout the various um, offices on campus. Uh, it was just two long days. And, and a benefit, obviously, had been there, so I was actually teaching my own students. I do remember a student, like, on that day giving me a little thumbs up in the back, like, you can do it. Because <laughs> it is nerve-wracking. You're, like, staring at, first of all, your class of students, and then you've got, you know, 10 professors in the back of the class. And um, Shaking their heads. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I was like, what are they going to think? And so that whole, you know, that was a very intense process. And just putting it all in God's hands. And then I received the official congratulations. You have been accepted um, to Christendom College as an assistant professor in the Department of English Language and Literature. So excited. I was so happy. And I was like, great. Yes, let's do this. And I, um, you know, two days later, put on my backpack and I, you know, get get ready to go home back to the Shire for <laughs> spring break of March 2020. Uh. And the world shuts down. And I just I just had this like overwhelming sense of wow, the ways of providence. Because, you know, nobody would have been brought to campus for any other time. I mean, we were we were very as much as close as we could for that whole next year, like hiring freezes or, you know, all of these things. And I just I just was, yeah, kind of in awe of the timing and God, you know, bringing me out to Front Royal for the year before I was able to apply to Christendom, being able to be at Christendom while I was applying having it all accepted and then going home and and again everything shutting down but i but i was in right yeah <laughs> um and so yeah so it's just it's yeah it's just i think staying alert um to these calls of the holy spirit because i wasn't sure when when my tac connection um brought me out to chelsea i was like oh, i don't really know like you know, I had a friend group and everything up in the D.C. area from Catholic University. And I was like, ah, I'm Front Royal. I don't, I don't know. But and then I remember when I first drove down to um, look at Chelsea and interview there, it was so foggy and misty. And I just had this experience as I'm driving on the 66. I was like, I'm going into the unknown. <laughs> Did What's you break out into song? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was before that one, but yes. If had I had I known that one, I would have. And then I another time trying to you know figuring out where would I live down in Front Royal. That second time I drove down, it was pouring rain. Like <clears throat> sky opened up, so much rain. And the, my GPS brought me through, what's what's that turn behind the Apple House? Dismal Hollow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It took me to Dismal And it was flooded. And I couldn't oh get gosh. through, you know, that part, that, that narrow turn yeah. where there's a pond yeah. right yeah. there? Mm-hmm. It was flooded. I couldn't get through. I was like, I don't know what to do. And then I tried to turn back. And then another part of the road was flooded. I could see the 66. And I'm, I'm like, can I drive up this grassy <laughs> slope to get back? And I... 
at that time, I, you know, I was texting, you know, my potential housemates and I was, I was just like, I can't get, I, the roads are flooded. And she was like, well, we have a friend who has a boat if you're ever stuck. <laughs> oh my gosh. And the whole, and I eventually just, I was on the GPS. It was five minutes away from the house that I was supposed to look at to see if I was going to live there. And I turned around and drove back to DC. I couldn't get there. And again, I was like, thinking, is this another sign? I don't know. But um, eventually, you know, it all worked out. But it just it's just so interesting the way when you look back of how I was led to certain places. But also, you know, you're always given a chance to say no. You're always given mm-hmm. a chance to turn back. And uh, I'm glad I didn't, you know, take the fog or the, you know, the flooded roads as as sort of like, well, that's God telling me don't do this. You know, you know, you've been given a great gift and you got to pursue with trust and faith. So, um, yeah, but I just, yeah, I think it's funny (laughs) coming on down and it's it's not smooth sailing and, you know, just in those small ways. Um, But you see you see the goodness of the goal and you just keep moving forward to that. How different was it coming into Christendom if you were, I mean, obviously you had been to two other schools, uh-huh. but like uh, the Socratic method, the seminar based in TAC that you really, really liked. Mm-hmm. And I think with literature, you have more of a seminar base rather than you're just lecturing at students. Yeah. Um, what kind of, how's that, was it, is it super different than what you experienced at TAC? Do you try to implement some things that you that you mm-hmm. experienced at TAC into your classes at Christendom? What's that sort of like? Yeah, no, awesome, awesome question. I definitely, yes, try to incorporate more of those discussions because it is literature and you, you have to have that kind of collaborative conversation. Um, it's harder with the Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 50 minutes flies mm-hmm. by. Mm-hmm. So I really liked the Tuesday, Thursday. And then when I was adjunct in at Christendom, I had an evening class and right. that was perfect. So I, yeah, I actually, love the evening yes, classes. Three hours, it go in depth, you know, you have more leisure. Yeah. It does, it kind of feels like this. You're like, we've got time. Let's just sit and yeah. talk. Um, so yeah, I might actually ask for evening class next semester. <laughs> Can I but, do all evening classes? Yes. <laughs> um, so, but basically, you know, you, you do want to make sure that you are teaching the text and certain ways in which I have to get through elements of say the Iliad or the Odyssey. So I always start class with, you know, that kind of opening questions. Okay. What would people respond to things like that? And then throughout the whole class, as I'm giving the lecture, I'm asking questions. Mm. And so it just, you know, we all experienced online classes that was terrible and we have this gift of being in person. So I, I always encourage the students and try to create an atmosphere of comfort where we're we're here in person let's take advantage of this and um and so yeah it's 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 more i know i talk more than the students do but you know that's just kind of the nature of our of our setup and the time and do you find that a lot of guys usually aren't as vocal because i was a political science major Mm. and in my classes usually the guys were more vocal than the girls because they were either more comfortable with a the subject matter or they kind of wanted the debate yeah but my experience of literature classes were usually that the guys were like okay we just have to get through this mm. and if it's like a, a point that i like particularly disagree with i'll say something or if i like the book that we're reading maybe but usually it was the girls saying well i read this and like this really struck <laughs> me and i thought this was beautiful. <laughs> yeah a lot of i yeah. feel statements and the guys yeah. were like i it was yeah. fine whatever you know yeah, and yeah. it wasn't like that I think sometimes it wasn't even that the guys weren't trying. Mm-hmm. It was just, it wasn't as engaging as they would have liked mm-hmm. or they had their opinions, but then the teacher kind of 
stated what they were thinking right. and so they just didn't speak up. So do you, yeah. do you find that that's hard yeah. to engage the guys of the class? Sometimes. I think it really does depend on the text. Um, so I, I just remember, you know, teaching the Iliad Odyssey. I think it just gets everybody invigorated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm invigorated about yeah. it, and which is or surprising. Confused. Or confused. <laughs> or confused. But, but, it, but um, I mean, yeah, I, I think it, it's just, it's a mix. But, um, yeah, I'd always, I'd always want to offer them the opportunity to let's see ourselves in the story. So the benefits of literature, which we can talk about more, but it offers you that particular experience of a particular time place and character and then through that particular you're gaining the universals like you're you're seeing the philosophical theological truths or you know political truths etc so it's kind of funny like say you're walking in sophomore year and we're we're set to read crime and punishment and i'm like now all of you 18 year olds in front of me 18 19 year olds in front of me you might not think that you have anything in common with a 19 year old russian axe murderer but you do. <laughs> and so, or, or again, you know, taking it back to like, you might not think that you have anything in common with a pagan 20 year old, 25 year old warrior Achilles, but you do like he too is struggling with mortality and mm-hmm. the desire to be glorious. And I'm like, just, just if you read any, you know, kind of like saint, um, you know, like the beginning of the mass, what's that called when they, when they say, I forget what it's called. But anyways, but sometimes like... The collect? Yes, thank you. And then it's like, and, you know, St. John of the Cross, who achieved imperishable glory. And I and I just go back to, oh my goodness, that's what the pagans want. Like in all of Homer mm. and mm. and Iliad and Odyssey, they too wanted to achieve this imperishable glory. Right. They just obviously didn't have the benefits of divine revelation. And so, yeah, seeing those types of similarities, like human nature is... is obviously the same just the time place and circumstances change so kind of expands your awareness of your connectivity with the worlds gone before you and and in the current time when you're reading literature because because you realize ah that's that's me that's us that's my friends and which is crazy to think about um the objective truth in kind of everything it doesn't matter if you're a Catholic or secular or an atheist, there are certain things that everyone just kind of has to agree upon, and human nature is one of those things. Um, so it doesn't matter what kind of literature you're reading, there's going to be something for everybody, mm-hmm. and you're going to sort of, uh, um, what's the word, relate to mm-hmm. to to whatever you're reading. Mm-hmm. In some way, I mean, if it's if it's if it's true, if it's true, like if it's not trying to right, right, right. impose a specific, I'm going to change what human nature is, and and then you kind of, yeah, get those elements of bad literature. <laughs> I, I actually found that I remember um, talking with some of my classmates <clears throat> about like pagan works and why we should read pagan mm-hmm. works and things like that. And I think a lot of it came down to like, they don't have good, the, these these pagan stories don't usually have good morals, mm. but they do have... Um, virtue mm-hmm. which almost sounds like uh, like it's not uh possible to have both but it is because mm-hmm. in a sense it'll have a soldier and it'll glorify um like horrible killings and like rape and mm-hmm. um having multiple partners and all of these things that's just part of the glory yeah, of culture. being a soldier mm-hmm. but at the same time which is bad but at the same time it'll emphasize glory and honor and like the importance of be, like being willing to die for a cause mm-hmm. and all of these things that I think 
a lot of times in Catholicism, other than the, the saints, especially in modern times, we don't necessarily have either examples of that or we don't really have a good idea of what that looks mm-hmm. like. And of course, there are the saints that did that that we can look to, but there's not that same sense of like patriotism or uh, willing to die for a cause or for people. It's all very like, it, it, I feel like Catholicism in itself in many ways has become kind of focused on the individual, mm-hmm. which can be good if you're talking about your individual perfection. But if you're talking about being selfless and doing things for others, I feel like sometimes pagan literature is actually better at showing what that looks like and just like donning your armor and going into battle mm-hmm. than what we have today. Yeah, you know? no, I, I would definitely say that certainly about literature, modern literature today. I remember reading an article about Homer, how he really did clarify what it means to be great for that time, for that culture. Um, this is the great man, the man who who has the kleos. You know, he, he's, his, his name is going to be immortal. And so Homer portrayed an entire culture. And in the article, it said, do we have an American Homer? Is there an artist? Is there an author who is showing us not only who we are, but what we ought to be? And, you know, Mm. the word ought always implies that moral decision. So, you know, the American Homer, is it Melville? Is it, you know, not Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn? I hope it's not Gatsby you know that's <laughs> would be terribly tragic if it was but but it's yeah I think um this sense of identity as as that collective you know common good literature can can portray it um because yeah it can capture true life but it also can capture the ideals which is obviously what we want to have again kind of going back to trying on in those wardrobe the wardrobe of our imagination so yeah, I think literature nowadays, it's so individualistic. It's so specified. Um, I can't think of an author, at least a living author currently, who is kind of capturing the sense of the whole, mm. maybe because we, we don't have the whole too, mm. too fragmented. Would, would you say that Mark Twain arguably is like America's author? Or do you think that someone else maybe has that yeah, I, I, yeah, it is interesting because Huck Finn too can be characterized as the American Odyssey, and in, in some ways, it's traveling down. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. It's, it's something still to keep pondering. Um, I know that during World War II, they would send works of literature to soldiers overseas as sort of a reminder of what you're fighting for. Like this is this is who you are. This is what we're fighting for. And they actually included Little Woman on the <laughs> list of books sent sent to the soldiers. I'd be interested. I, I only remember that because I was like, oh, of course, yes, they should have sent that. But um, I actually would go back and see what were some of the other books that they would con- that they would send to. Actually, they didn't just send it to the American soldiers, but they would send it to other countries of this is why this is who American this is who you know we are this is what Mm -hmm. America is so I'd have to go back to that list um trying to remember the other ones on it but I guess you know any of those works would be pre-1940s okay yeah with uh one of the things that I kind of remember I think I remember you talking about in one of the like the principal lectures that you oh, did. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, actually, I think it was on Jane Austen. It was yes. on Pride and Prejudice and everything. Yes. And one of the things, so I've only, the only book that by Jane Austen that I've read is North and Drabby, mm-hmm. um, which I only read because of um, Dr. McInerney's class. Yeah, the Imagination. Yeah, the Imagination, yeah. Right, and I actually, so it was, 
I definitely, I don't think I would have read it prior if I didn't, uh, if I didn't have a class for it. Uh, but one of the things I think I remember you saying was the, um, it's very apparent that like where the virtue is mm -hmm. in, and then, and then also in Northern Drabi, it's actually really interesting because it's, it's this, <laughs> I forget who the main character is. Catherine. But yeah, Catherine, yeah, yeah, she's, yeah. She's this kind of, uh, she reads a lot, but then is reading these kind of books that are kind of keeping her heads in the clouds yes. and not bringing it down. And then she's like learning through. So you're almost like through a book that you should be learning about virtue, this person, the main character is learning about yes, virtue too, yes. which I thought was really cool. Yeah. But so I could, t I, so I do want to ask what is, I mean, with all of Jane Austen's works, mm -hmm. especially for men, what, I guess, with that in mind about like how virtue is very mm -hmm. apparent, I guess, uh, I don't know if you can expound upon that yeah, or, sure, or just kind of sure. talk about that. Yeah. Why should men read Jane Austen? Yes, exactly. a great question. I'll give my short answer because <laughs> she makes virtue both attractive and attainable. Sure, I said no. I was good. Now we can move on. No, it was good. But yeah, she so she does portray human nature spot on. She's such a keen observer of the way in which we internally understand each other and the way in which we externally act and, and kind of those discrepancies of here's the polite veneer of, you know, proper mm. social decorum. Mm. Internally, let me provide my commentary. Mm. And and so you know, she kind of calls us out sometimes or frequently on that. But for men in particular, she does have an insight into, I, I would say, like the, the feminine mind that is um, very attentive to details and the way in which she's portraying her, her characters. Um, she, yeah, she allows us, she allows any of us readers to recognize that uh, we're going, the woman is going to read certain words or actions that are said to her in a way that, you know, would fit, I guess we all kind of do this, but what she would hope that it intends hmm. and how easily there can be those misinterpretations or misunderstandings. Um, but yeah, her, her male characters in particular, um, the examples of fatherhood present are not stellar. And so you can really see the desire to have a good virtuous father figure by what is lacking. Mm -hmm. And then um, in terms of husbands, I mean, I just kind of fatherhood and um, being a husband and two similar um, friendship here is really interesting. Austin very rarely gives just male characters talking on their own. There's always another female character present or it's filtered through Austin's narrator, her omniscient narrator. So the friendship that is portrayed amongst men is also sparse. You've got Darcy and Bingley. Um, you've got um, in Emma, you've got the two brothers. There's this great friendship. It's like one says John and the other says, you know, I forget his name, like Edward. And they shake hands. And just in the, the simple shaking of hands, it's like, and yet each would die for each mm, other, you right. know, that type of a thing. Um, but I think one of the benefits, and I, I did bring Emma, if, if there's time I can read a passage, but one of the benefits too is seeing friendship, um, this kind of fraternal correction that occurs in a friendship between um, a man and a woman, so Mr. Knightley and Emma. And I think in particular for 
for all of us, but perhaps for men, like having that fraternal brotherhood where you want to will the good of your friend. You want him to succeed in his pursuit of virtue and of goodness. And so how do I reach out and help them in this, in this endeavor? Um, Austin can portray that even, even though it's not amongst men. Um, should I, should I read a, should I read a passage? Yeah, go for it. Okay. Okay. So it's from, (laughs) it's from Emma and this is, this is Mr. Knightley. Emma has in public, she has insulted one of their neighborhood um, friends and in their, in their little small community. So this woman, you know, is kind of a chatterbox and Emma makes fun of the fact that she doesn't stop talking and it really embarrasses this woman. The others in the group notice it and um, Emma takes a while, like she kind of realizes the mood has shifted, but it isn't until her friend, Mr. Knightley, comes to her and then, and then he says these words. So I'll, so I'll look around, or so I'll, I'll read here. He looked around as if to see that no one were near, which I think also is really cool. I'm just interjecting because he's waiting until they're alone. Mm. You know, he's not fraternally correcting her mm. in front of everybody. And then he says, Emma, I must speak once more to you, as I have been used to do, a privilege rather endured than allowed, perhaps, but I must still use it. I cannot see you acting wrong without a remonstrance. How could you be so unfeeling to Miss Bates? How could you be so insolent in your wit to a woman of her character, age, and situation? Emma, I had not thought it possible. And he, she responds, sorry, she responds and, and then he continues on and he, he basically gives rationale her situation should secure your compassion. It was badly done to laugh at her, to humble her. And he says, this is not pleasant to you and it is very far from pleasant to me, but I must, I will, I will tell you truths while I can, trusting that you will sometime or another do me greater justice than you can do now. Okay. Hmm. And then he takes her into the carriage. She has her face turned because she's by this time crying. He misinterprets her reaction. And then too late, she turns back and tries to look back at him. But again, it's too late. And and yeah, it's just scenes like this. There's little moments sprinkled throughout all of Jane Austen in which you see the role of that man, um, man and woman relationship being enacted in a way that's trying to bring the other to virtue. Mm. The classic example, obviously, is in Pride and Prejudice. Um, Mr. Darcy proposes to Elizabeth Bennet, does not go well, goes about it in the wrong way, insults her as well, and she fires back, and then he's offended, and she's offended, and you know it leads to great distress on both sides. But the way in which they learn to now understand each other through later interactions and how she learns to gain respect for him and gratitude toward what he's done for the family. Um, it's it's very Christian. It's very also Aristotelian um, in the sense that you are you're aiming towards if you're at the team you're aiming towards a, a mean of the kind of these excess ways in which we respond out of emotion, and it ends it ends with for the characters who have the strength to admit their faults. It ends with that growth, that mm. actual maturity in 
whatever virtue that they're lacking in. So in Emma's case, it starts off, the first book starts off, the first sentence um, starts off with Emma Woodshouse, handsome, clever, and rich, with a comfortable home and happy disposition, seem to unite some of the best blessings of existence. Hmm. So the, the key of the word is some. So she's, she's actually missing charity. Hmm. She's missing compassion. And so this whole scene of fraternal correction, which is really difficult on both sides, that's now the spark that's going to just ignite in her deep internal reflection and actual positive action to mm. now grow in compassion and charity. So yeah, I think for, for men in particular, not only is it a beautiful book, it's intellectually engaging because her writing is stellar. Um, and it just, yeah, it gives insights into the workings of the female mind. I think in particular, Austin, you know, wrote what she understood and knew and, but also just the value of the relationship between man and woman on various levels. If it's family, if it's friend, if it's spousal, um, she, she shows how it's difficult to know and understand each other, how we often misunderstand, misinterpret and get frustrated and yet how we can work through those Mm -hmm confrontations to a greater understanding and it's never perfect um, but there's progress I guess two things that I would say the first thing is uh, kind of a comment of agreement and I think that just based on what you just read it's interesting to me that you have such a clear example of the man stepping in Mm -hmm. and saying you messed up but not in a holier than thou way and not in a like I command you to do this mm-hmm. kind of way but like you were saying in in a very like fraternal correction like I'm doing this because I love you yes and also the way that he handled it he didn't just stand up and say oh you're you're being ridiculous darling in front of everyone yes. he waited until the proper time which shows prudence he didn't get angry he doesn't raise his voice so to me that's fascinating because mm-hmm. a lot of times maybe not in literature but at least in modern um like movies and shows the husband or the father is kind of the bumbling idiot who does mm. everything wrong. And then the wife just says, okay, you're kind of stupid. Here's what you need to do. And that's based on a stereotype of men not picking up on mm-hmm. social cues and, and all of those things are true. But it also paints the man as this person who should be meek, who should step down, who should just listen to his wife and not as someone who maybe is wrong sometimes in being vindictive and um, even aggressive in dealing with situations but it paints that entire response as bad as opposed to saying, no, there's a prudent way to correct someone. Yep. But also, if there is a situation where we need to get violent or angry, you're the person that needs to step mm-hmm. up. Like the wife shouldn't have to do that. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that it seems to to frame the masculine response in a very prudent way without taking away from him or without putting his wife down or without doing any of those things. It, it just shows like this is the correct response. A guy should be able to see the injustice and step in, even if it means correcting and not just, okay, whatever you want, honey. Yes. And sometimes that is the right response, but also it's clear that maybe she doesn't have charity and that he does need to step in and say, you hurt this woman's feelings. Yes. You should probably apologize or, you know, make it right. Yes. No, very well said. Um, I guess the the second thing that I would say is more of a, not a criticism, but I guess a bit of a pushback. Mm -hmm. Do you think that men have, have trouble reading Jane Austen because it's so descriptive and probably more appealing to women in terms of like 
this person said this and they were wearing mm-hmm. this and they thought mm-hmm. about this and guys are like where's the action yeah, like is the there plot, a fight yeah. you know where's the do you think that that yeah. is a flaw in austin's work mm-hmm. or do you think that she's trying to um maybe call men to kind of put themselves in the position mm-hmm. of what women are going through in order to teach them something yeah yeah i think more on the latter it's it's she was definitely self-aware that she knew she was not writing, um, she she was not a, a Russian novelist who's mm. going to be writing of wars and great deeds and things like that. Um, she had a very small focus, and in that very small focus, she is detailing the the very minutia of life. Of we're going for walks, and this is what we see, and we're we're setting up this room for. Uh, ball and this is what we need to do it's actually it's actually hilarious and I, I think you guys have all worked for SAC and um there's probably maybe four pages like it just goes on and on and on in Emma where they are looking at these rooms there's like two rooms and then a long hallway and just analyzing everything well if we put the chairs here <laughs> and then well what about the the food and then well these windows and then well we need some area over here for the dancing and the cards and the this and this and this and i you know reading it out loud in class uh, to the student i'm like has anybody ever put on an event <laughs> this is what it is like this again it's it's human nature but yeah but it's just a side tangent of the amount of detail that she can go into and in, in terms of where you you might be like rolling your eyes and skim 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 but yeah i think there is a benefit as a man to be able to have the uh patience perhaps or or sort of the um mindset of this is going to bring me into a more detailed um, yeah, I'll just go with more detailed perspective than perhaps I'm used to. And yet still it's something that's familiar and Mm. it's something that I can understand and something that I can, um, again, recognize as this is true. Um, yeah, so I think there's a, there's a benefit to that, but it certainly is, it certainly is, uh, I don't know if it's an acquired taste, but it's something where if reading it isn't, immediately in in grabbing your attention then perhaps it's something more of an audiobook because it does Mm. sound like a conversation if you're reading jane austen out loud you're just like it sounds as if you're overhearing people talk Mm. on the on the train or you know and in you know in in rooms and things like that um yeah yeah she she's she's great to read out loud Uh, she would practice reading out loud to her family she would read snippets from her uh, drafts she would kind of uh stand up in front of the room and and kind of perform it and mm. so uh, yeah i think it's meant to be kind of in that that culture in which you would gather after dinner or whenever and you would read stories out loud to each other and mm. you know pre-radio and all that so yes um benefits of reading jane austen as a man in particular um can introduce you to perhaps a, a perspective that is more detailed oriented but still um, familiar and good. Something that struck me was as you were describing, like setting up the ballroom yes. or whatever. Uh, and I'm not well read on Jane Austen. Mm-hmm. I've only read Sense and Sensibility, mm-hmm. I think, and I couldn't tell you a thing about it. Um, <laughs> there's sensible people, and then <laughs> yeah. there's not sensible. Um, I think I don't know about you guys, but the stigma is just for for guys, especially. Mm-hmm. It's just oh, it's just some boring romantic novel. It's a girl's about, book. Blah, yeah. Blah blah blah. blah. 
Um, and as you read the passage and as you sort of went through um, the description of the bottom, which I thought was so funny, yeah, um, it's kind of just in our culture, it's it's just real life mm-hmm. because uh, as Anthony mentioned, um, where are the fights? Where's all this? Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody's getting into fights these days. Yes, yes. Uh, people are having conversations with each other. People mm-hmm. are internally struggling rather than externally struggling with, with fights and battles. So I think... Um, for for something uh, that is more realistic and more uh, relatable to this day and age yep. um, is awesome. And I think also the relationship between like the man and the woman, not just in a romantic point of yes, view, but it's in, not just in a friendship, yep. in, a, in a professional um, uh, relation, it's 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 awesome to see. Yeah, so. yeah, no, that's so true. She's portraying daily life, and you know, perhaps all of it's mundane trivialities but really she's portraying this the struggle of the soul right how do i be a, how am i supposed to act in this situation there's this really interesting scene in sense and sensibility <laughs> um where the most polite of the sisters so there's one who's very sensible and rational and prudent and then there's one who is totally not all the excess of all her emotions <laughs> And there's a scene where there's been startling news and the sensible sister, she recognizes internally, it's up to me to carry on the polite conversation because my other sister, my Marianne, she's not capable of doing that because she's so emotional Mm -hmm. and excessive. And so you have this, again, kind of interplay externally. She's doing the proper, polite, you know, socially respectable give and take, engaging people in the conversations. Internally, she's chaotic. Like she's in such pain from hearing this news. She She's like, uh, she, internally, she's struggling, upset. And, and so she kind of has this phrase of, it's up to me though to tell the polite lies in order to preserve mm. this um, decorum and, and respect. Polite lies in the sense of, I'm saying things that I do not feel, right. but out of respect... To the neighbors, to the people who are visiting here, I'm going to do what's right in this situation, what's prudent in this situation, even though internally I wish I could just scream and run out of the room. So that that type of interplay, too, of our external obligations to our neighbors. And again, it's not just family members or romance. Um, I get it. You know, the girl and the guy get together at the end of all the books. <laughs> but, but in surprising ways. Um, but yeah, it's more of... We all desire that integrity of what we say uh, matches up with what we think, what we do matches up with what we say. But there are times where we're not being hypocritical, but we are out of care and compassion for those around us in that daily setting. We have to speak and act in a way that we don't feel, but for them for for mm. for the sake of the common good right. and so i really admire that in one of her other stories persuasion it's it's her last book she wrote before she died she she died very young she died at 35 or 41 she started publishing her works at 35 so oh. she kind of had this very wow. um oh. yeah she had a fascinating life if we have time i'd love to tell you more about jane austen's life but uh she a fascinating life in very confined households um uh, but she, in her final book, Persuasion, she has an older heroine. She's 27, not the typical like 19 or 20-year-old. And this heroine has already had her love 
when she was 17, 18 years old. And so it's been several years and, you know, this guy was a naval officer and so he's back in the neighborhood. And this character, Anne, she's the rock of the family, but they don't recognize her as such. They're very vain, selfish. The rest of her, her dad, her sisters, they're all only concerned about their own desires and comforts and they're like oh blah 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 blah. I want to do this this and this and we're going to ignore Anne she's just Anne like they don't value her they don't see her they don't recognize she's actually the one holding the family together and when the naval officer comes back into the neighborhood you see again the intensity of the feelings of the main character that she cannot reveal because it's not appropriate Mm -hmm. it's not prudent and and sort of the interior strength depicted in the story in particular is so, I would say, a strong, attractive way to demonstrate interior strength, like this this right. strength of will, strength of virtue. Um, it's very frustrating, but I understandable when modern movie adaptations, particularly of this book, show a feisty heroine. She's mm. sassy. She's like quick with the responses. She's like, blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to deal with these people. And that's so not the book. But I was thinking about that and I was thinking, gosh, it must be difficult for, for Hollywood and to be able to show an engaging, attractive, I don't mean just me physically, but an attractive character who is silent, who mm. is quiet, right. who is, you know, kind of off in the corner and content to hide behind the piano and play while everybody else dances and has fun. And that's your heroine. That's your main character. Mm-hmm. How do you portray interior strength in a way in which, you know, people find it desirable? And like, I want to be that quiet, shy girl in the corner playing the piano. I don't want to be out mm-hmm. there on the dance floor dancing because she's she's awesome. Um, you get that through reading the book. I, I haven't seen it successfully done, I, you know, in, in a visual Right. adaptation there are some better adaptations than others but um yeah that's sort of the the power of austin as well of of um sort of fighting back against the mode of well if i'm not expressing everything i feel then i'm not honest mm-hmm. so i'm gonna just say everything that i think and feel because that's me that's who i am and you guys need to deal <laughs> that's not austin mm-hmm. austin's like do do what's prudent do what's charitable do what's compassionate mm-hmm. um do what's best for the common good, for the common good of your family, of your community. Be be your, you know, flourish as an individual with your individual gifts and strengths. But um, but you know, uh, yeah, put that put that higher good first. Can I ask you a question about persuasion? Yeah. Um, when this navy guy comes back and mm-hmm. all of her emotions or whatever, and, so strong. Um, and it's like she can't really express that because mm-hmm. if she did, the family would kind of break apart. Is that kind of? Uh, yeah, he, he's still wounded from her rejection back when they were teenagers. So mm-hmm. he's coming back because he has family in the neighborhood as well. Um, on the lookout for a wife and she's not on the list. Mm-hmm. Okay, I see. Sounds I see. like he needs to get over it. <laughs> so it's a very self-sacrificial. Totally yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or, ex- or in that case too. That's what Austin also shows. There are appropriate times to express your feelings. He had hidden his heart. She could sense it. She's very sensitive. She can pick up. Oh wow, he's still mad at me. It's been seven plus years. I still like him. And um, look at him looking at these other girls dancing while I'm hiding behind the piano. But yeah, it's it's a self-sacrificial love. Um, 
spoiler alert, it ends happily. <laughs> but but again, there's growth. I, I actually I would recommend you guys reading Persuasion. There is there's growth on his side too. Like probably we see more internal um, the consciousness from his character than we do in other Austin books. She she again she'll go inside a character's mind mm. and heart very often, but usually it's a female character. Mm. Would you recommend Persuasion to male readers over any of the other books, or do you think that there's a particular work of Austin that either is better to read for men or at least just easier. Like if you're Mm -hmm. a guy who's never read Jane Mm -hmm. Austen and you're like, okay, not a huge fan of the idea, Mm -hmm. but I'll give it a shot. Do you think that persuasion is a good one to start with? Or is there, is there another one that you think is an easier read or maybe he's asking for us? I was going to say you all (laughs) need, well, I know. I think yes, yes. Persuasion, but no read Pride and Prejudice first. Okay. And would Pride and Prejudice be your recommendation yes. across the board? Yes, okay. it is. And she she characterized it herself. It is, quote, the most light and bright and sparkling. It's the most dialogue heavy. I would say it's the easiest read in the sense of you're not going to get lost in that complex, you know, intricate structure of sentences. But it is, yeah, it's just fun and funny has the depth, has sort of that, again, that interior struggle that we all go through, even if you are primarily seeing it from the girl's perspective, Elizabeth. But it's so applicable of how many times that we have certain standards by which we're judging others. And then we realize those standards are out of priority. Mm -hmm. And so what you're really seeing is someone who, based on her standards of this is how a man should act, this is how a gentleman should act. This is how a gentleman should act at a dance. Since the main character doesn't meet at all any of her standards, she rejects him and then everything else is filtered through that rejection. And so further information that she gains, well, it further substantiates the fact that he's, you know, he's beneath my notice, so to speak, and he's mm. frustrating and annoying um, until... And it comes in the middle of Pride and Prejudice. And I, I talked about this in, in that talk I gave her principles until she's actually able to see his interior uh, consciousness through a letter. And that's pretty much the only time that we see no way. I actually was acting according to a different set of standards at this particular moment. I did have reasons which you don't know. And I'm going to explain now for why I acted as I did. Yes, some of those ways in which I acted was wrong. But hopefully, you know, you can see the justification. So, um, yeah, so Austin is just one of those authors that depicts um, how, based on a certain observation that we have, we reach conclusions. He acted this way, therefore not marriage material, so to speak. But she's the one who's asking us to consider, well, what are your standards? What are your principles? Are you putting at the very top a man of integrity, a man of virtue, or are you putting at the top rich, handsome, and good dancer? You know, like which I mean, those are the top yeah, three. I top, yeah. Check, check, check. <laughs> those are yeah. So that's also that's fun to discuss too. Of, of just sort of what are the principles Austin is presenting to us by which we are judging all the characters in the book. But yeah, long answer. Read Pride and Prejudice first, and then read Persuasion. Persuasion is great for older. Are there any movie adaptations that are that stand out from Mm -hmm. other movies as like okay, this one? Mm -hmm. If you're gonna watch any movie adaptation of maybe Pride and Prejudice or um, Little Women or something, yeah, this is the one to watch. Yeah, or there, yeah, 
Yeah, no, yeah. The, the, the classic Pride and Prejudice one came out in 1995. It's the BBC one. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. It's just classic. It, it, you can hear quotes from Austen in that book mm-hmm. all the time. It's so like almost verbatim where I think, wow, the screenwriters had a pretty easy time. <laughs> just <laughs> back to the book. But I think that's also another element of the brilliance of her writing um, for the multiplicity, hundreds of adaptations that are made by Austen. There are certain lines that seem to crop up in all these movies where like, it's that good. You know, the the whatever modern adaptation they're making, um, they still use her original text. So yeah, that's a really good one. Um, I love the Sense and Sensibility one with Emma Thompson. Um, yeah, there's there's lots of good ones. And then Emma, there's a great there's a great mini series of Emma and I don't know who forget who's starring in that one, but there's an yeah. Yeah. There's one with Jeremy Northam. He's Mr. Knightley in one of them. And usually, too, like the aesthetic of the movies are, um, I like the ones where they're trying to still be in that in that kind of um, Regency era and kind of the music of the time that would be used. So, but you can you can get <laughs> very different adaptations from Austen. Mm. I think she's you know telling again story of life, as you're saying, Mark. Mm. It's just it's just life, right. in all of its normalcy, but also too in its intense desire to mm-hmm. have a good life and flourish in it um, without the battles and the duels there's right. there is a duel in sense and sensibility but it's not described at all so it's yeah just i these... remember that part <laughs> I, it was just, wow it's so good all the drama <laughs> i will say the movie adaptation they really play it up there's like a whole scene it's in mist and in the morning and like dramatic music but uh the the one line in it so you, this man is defending the honor of his of his uh, ward, and it just says, they met by appointment. Neither was injured. <laughs> Reading between the lines, oh they had a duel. Oh my goodness. Wow. <laughs> so that's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A little disappointing. Yeah. A little bit disappointing, yeah. I felt the shot miss. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. in the mist. Yeah. Yeah. Give me some blood at least. <laughs> nothing, nothing like that. I would mm-hmm. love to go into the life of Jane Austen, yeah. but before you go into that, sure. I'm curious, did you specialize in studying Jane Austen at CUA, mm. or is that something that as you were there, you just were like, oh, she's great, and then you, you've you kind of just yeah kept, like, continued that education, and that's why you're so versed in Jane Austen Yeah, uh, both, actually. So growing up, I had read it. I forget how old I was when I first read. And I know I did start with Pride and Prejudice, too. I think it is her most accessible. And just loved it. I think I also felt, like, grown up, like, oh, I'm reading Pride and Prejudice. (laughs) And then the rule in the Sullivan household was you cannot watch the movie unless you read the book first. So that was also an incentive um, to, to read the book so we could watch the movie. And then in grad school in Dallas, I took this class, Just Jane Austen, which surprised and shocked and delighted me that, whoa, I get to spend an entire semester just on one author. Because at TAC, you're reading like so much all the time. You spend, you know, two weeks on on two classes only on one book so that was a delight um i loved my professor's way in introducing us to sort of again the intricacies of her writing so having that class at ud and then i had another class at catholic university on 19th century british novels which she was included in that um and then i wrote an essay for that class for that seminar and my professor was like you know what this essay could potentially be developed into a dissertation so that kind of gave me the the um instigation for that 
but I didn't just write on Austin for my dissertation. So I guess you would say my specialty is in Austin, but it's the 19th century British novel. Mm -hmm. So in the dissertation, I had a chapter in Austin, but I also had a chapter on Dickens, William Thackeray, and then Elizabeth Gaskell. So kind of the broad sweep of that, of that century. Um, but yeah, it was such a delight last year. I was able to teach a class on Austin here and it, it was, it was just wonderful. Was that because of your request or would the, did yeah. the college ask you to do that? Nope. Nope. I requested, but so we have categories for our English major requirements where you have to take two classes from, you know, medieval times to say, I think we cut it like 1800s and then you have to take two classes from the 1800s to modern. So they just, it just fit in, you know, category awesome. B. Yeah. But yeah, Austin's so, life. Jane Austen, Austen, yeah, Jane Austen's yeah. life. Uh, well, she was born 1775, so near our American wow. Revolution. Whoa. Yes. She was um, the sixth child of seven. And um, her parents, um, she was born in December, and her parents were, they wrote, they had five boys and they're like and now we have a playmate for cassandra and so she and her only sister cassandra they were best friends and so when cassandra was sent off to school then jane austen wanted to go as well because she just didn't want to be separated from her sister and her mom you can read in one of her letters her mother wrote if cassandra were to be sent to the guillotine jane would follow (laughs) (laughs) so but it was it was quite sad so their father he was a reverend he he was a um, anglican minister in in england and he had a boys school in his home so he would bring in some local boys and he would uh, sometimes they would board and so he would teach them and it was rare for the time for for jane and her sister to kind of be given full access to their father's library but they were just allowed to read and they were very theatrical and all of her older brothers were very uh, artistic in that way. And so there's a lot of fun around the, around the Austin, I guess, living room, uh, putting on these plays. Um, the second son, there was, there was something wrong developmentally with him that they, uh, they actually fostered him out. The, the second son was given to be cared for by a local family in the neighborhood because um, they're not sure if it was epilepsy or whatnot. In one of the letters, the parents described him as like, uh, George is having less fits now Mm. so so Mm. they think it was seizures it might have been something like that and mr and mrs austin i guess deemed that they couldn't give the proper care to this boy um, to their child and so yeah i know it's kind of shocking and you're like oh (laughs) but also practice of the time was that sometimes the mother after giving birth she would give her baby to a local nurse to raise until honestly until the child started walking so i think it was sort of like family you know unity that we think about today um wasn't the same Hmm. and then um later on jane austen so technically third brother but the second one had you know been fostered out the third brother he was um he was often invited to join one of Mr. Austin's wealthy relatives on their trips, they were, they would travel to Europe a lot and they would invite this other Austin son with them and they didn't have any children. And they asked Mr. and Mrs. Austin, can we take him? (laughs) Can, Can we adopt him? And they said, yes. Wow. So, so there's, yeah, two sides. Wow. <laughs> so, but it actually, you know, and all the things that, you know, worked out, worked out to the advantage. So he took their name too. He was Austin Knight and 
he later on he inherited this massive you know wealth and this huge mansion which is now a library today and a museum Chotten House um so because later on in life once Mr. Austin died the mother Mrs. Austin Jane and her sister had no income they just didn't have anything or kind of lived around various family members for a certain amount of time and so her brothers would take care of the the woman of the family and so this adopted brother with now this all this wealth and this massive mansion he's like all right mom sisters come live with us but they didn't live in the mansion <laughs> they lived in the little cottage <laughs> down on the very edge of the property which was which, that their choice i i think it might have been it might have been the brothers too like do i really want my mom living here? but um but it was i guess very uh, pleasing to austin because she set up her writing desk right by a window which is on the you could see the road and I, I just imagined she would sit there and write and look out the window and just mm. kind of observe, again, life passing by. Was it so, common for women to be writing at that time? No, no. So this is also the funny part of it. So her dad did give her, um, which again was expensive for the time, like gave her a means to write little stories when she was a teenager. And they're published now. They're called her Juvenilia and they're hilarious. They're so satirical and sassy. Um, but yeah, and then she would kind of write novels that her brothers would encourage. Her brothers also wrote while they were in Oxford, like published magazines and things, but it wasn't common. So when she started writing after her dad's death, like more as a full time, because all throughout until then, until her thirties, she was dear aunt Jane. Her brothers all got married, mm. like five, 10, 13 kids. Oh. And so she would stay, she and her sister would just go and stay at various amounts of times with at her brother's homes and at that time a woman couldn't travel uh, at least of this social class of her own they were kind of in the middling gentry class so she'd have to wait until her brother could come and pick her up take her to the house you'd stay definitely at least a month or so and then she'd have to wait until her brother was mm. ready to bring her back or bring her to another place and yeah so that kind of that kind of was her life she did receive, uh, she kind of had this teen flirtation um, with a young Irish friend of a friend of friend. a, a friend, of, right? They danced in a shocking way, she wrote in one of her letters. And, um, so magical. Yeah, like so Christendom. magical. Yes, it all happens at a dance. And he had a blue coat. And, um, but eventually his relatives were like, well, we don't know, you know, we don't want him marrying some, you know, local, not very wealthy girl. So they sent him back to Ireland. And I guess later on, he became like the chief justice of Ireland and people who were fans of Austin tracked him down and asked him and he said, oh yes, Jane Austen, it was a boyish love. (laughs) Um, so anyway, she did have that, I would say romance and then. There was another, I think in her late 20s, one of her sisters, or no, one of her brother's friends proposed to her, and his name was Harris Bigwitha. And she said yes, and then the next morning she said no, and immediately asked her brother to take her in the carriage away. <laughs> um, oh my. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and so much speculation. Why did she accept the proposal? Was she worried she'd be an old spinster? Why did she reject him the next morning um you know did she think then my ability to write you kind of get more of like she found out he couldn't dance and that's yeah that type of thing too um you know there's authors who are like well it's because she wanted to focus on career i'm like i i mean i kind of get the blue coat it was the blue (laughs) (laughs) but 
Yeah, that was Irish. But she, I think it's just like she didn't want to marry without love. And um, so, yeah, so she she never got married, but she lived with her sister and her mother for the rest of her life and oh. in that little cottage. And, um, yeah, when she was writing her stories, um, she sent it off to one of her one of the publishers through her brother, her brother would help. They didn't publish it. And so she wrote this letter. She signed it like Mrs. Ashton Dennis of like, how come you haven't published this? You've received my novel, et cetera. The acronym is mad Mrs. Ashton Dennis. So she, that's kind of like her, her (laughs) mode. They eventually, subtle, very subtle. Yeah. They eventually sent it back. They didn't publish it. And then, so her brother sent it off to another publisher who they did. And then mm. it was never published under her name because it wasn't acceptable right, really to, right. to have a career as a writer. Um, and then it's funny though. So after the other publisher published this book, um, her brother apparently wrote back to the original publishers and was like, by the way, the novel that you refuse is actually <laughs> one of them, you know, fastest published. Anyway. Yeah. But um, she had this little teeny tiny writing desk and apparently, uh, or like a table where you could lift up and put paper inside of it. So she, um, I guess the door was squeaky, the, the front door of their cottage was squeaky. So whenever she heard the door squeak, she would put her writing inside that, that mm-hmm. little table desk and take out her sewing. Sneaky. Yeah. <laughs> why was why was writing like so looked down upon? Yeah, like if she got yeah. caught writing, what would yeah? What would the punishment she was be? A woman be looking or a husband? Was writing I in think general? I think it was just as a woman, okay. you know, trying to live independently at the time. I don't know if I'm hmm. yeah, if that really is that is. I don't I don't quite know. I think it just wasn't socially done for their. For it their just era. seems like something that she would absolutely put in one of her novels like yeah. one of the characters is secretly writing yeah. this whole scandal and you're yeah. like why is it a scandal it like a scandal? if she yeah. makes money off it great and if yeah. not she just enjoys writing oh, the like capitalist what's, what's the yeah. problem yeah. yeah yeah i mean at the time so let's see she first published 18 18 i'm trying to remember i think frankenstein actually i think frankenstein mary shelley published frankenstein around then as well mm. The Bronte sisters were much later. They were in the 1830s. So prior to that, there were female authors. So in the 18th century, the big mode of writing were these sentimental novels and the young heroine would go into the world and experience all the things and get in trouble and then be rescued. Like a Hallmark book? Yes, probably very excessive. And so (laughs) maybe another element, um, Jane Austen is very like if we were talking very realistic um not not cold in her emotions because the emotions are present but compared to what was in vogue especially from female authors of her era she was so different Mm. she was um sort of ahead of her time in that sort of realistic writing um even if you've read any charles dickens he can get very sentimental and excessive and i love dickens but but sometimes too you're just you're just kind of like you're your female characters in particular, um, not not in Bleak House, but um, sometimes you're just like, they're not real. They're just, I don't know. Lucy is, she's just the light of the novel in A Tale of Two Cities and there's not much else to her. So Austin was writing with this depth on realistic situations and again, day-to-day life. So it wasn't, 
it wasn't what anybody was doing at the time. So maybe mm-hmm. sort of her mode too was, I wouldn't, people wouldn't understand. Like I'm doing, I'm doing this type of writing that is delightful to me, but not what's in vogue. Was she Anglican? Yes. Yes. Was she like, what was Very her sort faithful. of faith like? Yeah. Yeah. So she, you can actually, when you go to her house someday, you want to go, um, they have a framed um, prayer that she composed and I, th- I think it's it is in her own handwriting, and part of it at the end of the prayer is the Our Father, but it's very. Oh, I wish, yeah, I wish I could read it. It's very again, kind of focused on the common good. It's like, please let me do my duty. Please let me have compassion and charity. Like, dear Lord, help me to help those around me. Um, that kind of element. So yeah, she she was raised by her father, who was an Anglican minister. Two of her brothers entered the religious profession as ministers, um, which was seen as a career. It was like mm-hmm. you were, you know, a lawyer, you were a minister, you were part of the Navy. Um, but yeah, she she definitely understood that element of providence. In all of her novels, there's a joy. Like, I think that's also what draws me to her. She's, she's very joyful in the sense that no matter, again, how far you fall, there is restoration possible and achievable. And so that type of providential understanding, um, it's, it's woven throughout her novels in a subtle way. It's, it's not, it's, you know, you wouldn't really say, oh, Austin, Christian novelist, but it's, mm-hmm. it's there. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and it just too, like all the coincidences in Pride and Prejudice, there's a scene after the disastrous marriage profos- um, proposal, like the two main characters just happen to bump into each other. And I love it because... They bump into each other, and again, the last time they saw each other, it was painful. Um, but they bump into each other. They're in. They're with Mr. and Mrs. Gardiner, which are Elizabeth's aunt and uncle. Mm-hmm. They're with the actual gardener of the estate, and they're in the gardens. <laughs> and I'm like, there's, there's gotta be garden, like gardening imagery here. I'm, I mean, I'm probably reading way too much, but that's where the two main characters meet again with having drastically different perspectives mm. of each other by this point in the novel. Interesting. Yeah, and I kind of think mm. like that's sort of a, a sort of a subtle way in which Austin is showing like all right, you know, we got to till the soil, it's going to be rough, but we got to plant the seeds, hopefully bear good fruit, kind of kind of all that imagery happening. Um um, those types of providential occurrences are are in many of her novels. Um yeah. You mentioned that uh her I guess older older brother mm-hmm. who was adopted. Yeah. Um he was he became part of the Knight family. Mm-hmm. Was there any is there any speculation about her character Mr. Knightley being oh. related to that? Like was that just a name that was in her mind or do you think that that was that. just kind of totally random? Yeah, it could be random. She repeats names all the time. I I that would be really cool if it did. Um, in the book Persuasion, I was recommending the main character is a naval officer and it's, he's portrayed very sympathetically and he's the hero and despite his still angst for seven (laughs) years, but two of her younger brothers entered the Navy and they both had very illustrious careers in the Navy, um, rose to admirable, admiral. And, um, so yeah, knightly, but also maybe knight, the knight, you know, the, Mm. the ideal chivalric. Christian Knight probably is the image there. Tolkien is known for, um, I mean, his whole like language creation, but also for yeah. names 
like you break the name down and it it's very specific and the elves have a very specific way of being named and all that there's is there any sense in jane austen's work about like for example mr knightley being named mm-hmm. that and he's like kind of in the shadows and he's kind of mm-hmm. and then there's like another lat like do you find a, a correlation between yeah. the last or first name and what that maybe what people would think like a biblical name or something and then yeah. you kind of see traits of that person or does it seem more random in her works yeah no no there definitely is that element so the one of the more malicious character his name is mr wickham <laughs> mm. <laughs> wickham and then another character who is uh, wishy-washy his name is willoughby and it's kind of like willie 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 not um mm. but but also too there's a character who he's not exactly admiring although we understand why he acts the way his name is Frank Churchill. I guess more sort of you could see maybe the British presidents against mm, the French. Mm. Um, but she does repeat names a lot and it can get very confusing. There's so many Janes in her novels, but I don't think she's naming them after herself. It's just Jane. There's Edward, Edmonds, Mary, Anne, all very simple names like that. It's the Catholic version of Joseph I, I, and Mary. I think like. so. I think so. Um, but yeah, definitely now and then she'll she'll drop in a like Wickham, and they're like, mm. well, even saying that sounds wicked. Right. So, um, but yeah, no, those are always fun fun little paths to travel down. Of why did she name this character in a certain way? So I have a question about literature yes. in general and novels, and mostly I guess mostly novels and uh, um, but. With, darn it, I'm com- it's coming back, I promise. <laughs> um, do you want me to ask my question? And Please then you can do. Go? It'll yeah. come to you. So come earlier back. we I'm were so talking sorry. about yeah. whether Mark Twain yeah. was the kind of prototypical American author. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there is a American poet mm. or an American artist? I think... Um, before the show, we were talking uh, at your roommate's house. Yes. Uh, you have, there. I believe they're your paintings of Norman Rockwell. Yeah, up. no. Yeah, and they... I mentioned the last time I was there <clears throat> how I thought that Norman Rockwell maybe or arguably is the American artist. Yeah. Not that that doesn't mean that there aren't other good artists that live in America, but because America is so young, we don't have like the Caravaggio and sure. the, you know, all of these different artists from America. Usually they're from other countries. And if you actually think about it, I don't know how many artists Americans could even name, but I know that Norman Rockwell is that one that he kind mm-hmm. of shows the classic, like 19, maybe thirties through forties mm-hmm. and fifties American, like Christmas and very specific holidays and memories. And then there's all of this detail in the painting that seems very American esque. Yes. Would you agree that maybe he's the American artist, or do you think there's maybe another list of artists that arguably could fit that? Yeah, no, category? I yeah, it's a great question. I like that. I actually, I'm thinking there's comparisons between Rockwell and Austin, but yeah, no. To your point too. So actually, it was Dr. Flippin who gave gave my housemate this great book, and so we have a Norman Rockwall. nice yes so but no but yeah he definitely captures especially in his four freedoms that that sort of patriotic understanding that the common man can speak so one of my favorite ones which i'm sure you're all familiar with is the town hall meeting where the man is standing up and he's looking forward kind of upwards and other people in the town hall are various looking up at him or down at their program or elsewhere and that i think just captures like 
we all have a voice and we can use it and we ought to. And this is, this is how we're going to move forward. Um, and he's also a storyteller in his painting. So as you mentioned too, like there's so many details in one shot. I remember when I was at Catholic University, there was an exhibit downtown at the National Portrait Gallery in DC, and it was George Lucas and Steven Spielberg's personal collection of Norman mm. Rockwell oh paintings, goodness. originals. Wow. Oh, it was awesome. And so I think I went a couple of times to the exhibit, and they had a little video portraying, you know, talk, Spielberg and Lucas talking about why they were drawn to Norman Rockwell. Um, and they said that he captured an entire story in one frame in mm. one shot mm. so that all the background characters are contributing the color scheme the angle the lighting it's all contributing to telling a story and lucas was saying that was his goal when he's filming to make every frame every shot all the details have to contribute to that story so i don't know if that's particularly american um or if it's or if it's just an element of the great artist wants to make sure that there's nothing superfluous and all the pieces are contributing to the whole uh so yeah in that sense we could maybe you could make an argument that that is an element of the american spirit where we are all working towards or i would say maybe in a town or small community you're all working hopefully towards that common good and then everybody has their various role to play so that your individual good can flourish in the common good so even if you're in the background part of you is cut off you're still contributing to the story right right something that strikes me about norman rockwell that you don't see in a lot of other artists and um <clears throat> i think that's what separates him in many ways from a lot of the other you know um, just artists in general or maybe American artists is that when you look at his works, he's not painting like the crowning of Caesar mm -hmm. and like, he's mm -hmm. not doing these huge historical events. It's just like, Oh, there's the, the soldier home from war. And yes. it's very classic, like small town, mm -hmm. relatable, patriotic American good. Like there's, I think it, one of his really famous ones is the Thanksgiving dinner table. Yes. You can't really capture that in this awesome huge painting of the pilgrims maybe but what's more relatable is just everyone around the family table and you see the different people are wearing different things from different generations and they're mm -hmm. all coming together in the chaos and and you're able to see that um which it just made me think yeah it seems like he is the prolific american mm -hmm. artist and i can't think of anyone else there are other american mm -hmm. artists i'm sure and maybe they're more versed in like religious paintings and things like that but no one else comes to mind. And it's the same thing, I guess, even more so with poets. I can't mm -hmm. think of someone who's specifically an American poet who's just like really well known, mm -hmm. beloved by all Americans. It's like, I don't, I mean, I guess there's a few, but it seems like Norman Rockwell is the only artist I could think of. And then in terms of poets, there's no one. Yeah, I would, I would say perhaps Robert Frost, if you've, if you've read some Robert mm -hmm. Frost, which I do have a special affinity to him just because he lived in New Hampshire for a while. So, yay, the, <laughs> the Shire. Shire. Yes. He's a hobbit. He is a hobbit, <laughs> yeah, as a farmer. And his main mode of writing, he tried to capture conversations in the written word. So he had this phrase that you would hear the sound of sense in the written word. And so he, he gave the example that if you're standing behind a closed door and you hear murmuring behind the door of people having a conversation, just by their tones and inflections, you can 
get the general sense, okay, is this contentious? Is this, you know, um, welcoming? Is this, what might it be? And so he tried to capture that real element of speech in his, in his poetry. So yeah, he has these great conversational poems on that. And, and so I, I think that could be characterized as American in the sense that we are focused on the individual and the way in which they talk, mm. but also the community of, of uh, one of his famous poems is Mending Wall, where it's just two men. They, are, they have a stone wall between their property. They're not talking to each other as they're going line by line and putting in the stones to fix the stones that had fallen out. But the famous line is, good fences make good neighbors. Mm. Lots of people take that of like, yes, therefore, stay away from me. But but the whole element of the poem is there's a communal working mm. together. And at one point in the poem, the man narrating it as they're walking along and fixing the stone wall, he looks at his neighbor in a different way. It's almost heroic of, wow, look how strong he is. And I've never noticed this before. And so that element of working together, like tough work picking up stones i guess maybe isn't that tough but he has a lot of kind of those farming poems and and uh yeah the new england life of apple picking kind of those poems you got to dig into the earth that we're that we've been given and nurture it and take care of it but you don't do it alone right so Mm. maybe that also could be an element of the american artist uh a question or you mentioned mark twain I wonder what your thoughts on uh, Flannery O'Connor were. Mm, yeah, just in terms of sort of that American author. Yeah, yeah. I don't. She definitely is the Southern author. Right. She. Yeah. Her. Her mode too. I think is maybe not so much capturing. She captures life as it is, but I think she has a more focused purpose. I want to capture light as it is, and I want them the characters in the story to see more to see beyond their prejudices and their blindness so she has this quote where she says the world so she was writing in the 50s um 60s she said that we are so deaf and we are so blind to god that at times the only way in which we can actually see or hear the workings of god is through violence Mm -hmm. Violence can, she says, there's a twofold purpose of violence. Violence can either, or it can both break you in such a way that it brings you back to reality and also break open your stilted, you know, calcified heart in such a way that you're now open and disposed to receive grace. However, you can still reject it. Mm. So, her endings, if you've read any of her stories, some of them are more clear than others. Some of them are ambiguous. Will the character actually accept mm-hmm. the grace that's being offered to him or her? So she, yeah, she's excellent in portraying us as we are and then also showing us more, um, leading leading us beyond uh, our falseness, etc. So her mode too, I really like using in my teaching of it's the sacramental understanding of the world where everything in our observations in our life is a sacrament. So it's that external sign of the invisible mm. grace. Mm. So she's able to show us even in these violent, shocking moments uh, when we're, our pride is overturned or our, you know, prejudices are, are, 
smacked or choked out of us, um, that also can be a moment where we are now led to see beyond the reality, to see now the invisible workings of, of God's grace in our lives. So I, yeah, I really like that about Flannery and other great artists. It's such an interesting, um, contrast, contrast. There's a specific word I'm looking for, but I can't think of it to compare what like Dostoevsky would say Mm. in like, you know, beauty, beauty will save the world Mm -hmm. because that like beauty will bring you to God. But then maybe sometimes people are so blind to reality that you actually need like horror and violence Mm -hmm. to bring you to see God. Um, I think there's a, a war correspondent, um, something pile. I could look it up. I think it's Ernie pile. And then he's later quoted by Eisenhower when they, he talks about there's no atheists in foxholes. Yes. Because you get to that point of we might blow up any second mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you're, you don't know if there's God, but it's, it's like Pascal's wager. Right. <laughs> like, well, right. I don't know if there is a God, but if there is, I, I'd rather shape. be yeah. in good graces and have that work out because yeah. otherwise nothing happens. But if there's a chance, I'm going to, I'm going to try to be a good person. Yeah. So it's an interesting contrast in the faith of like, you can see these great like virtue or great examples of heroic virtue of and purity with St. Therese and um, saints who just lived these perfect lives. And then on the other side, you see these saints who suffered all of these horrible things and both lead to truth and grace, but from two different perspectives. And it kind of provides this example maybe for people who beauty almost doesn't work on them. They're they're kind of so dead inside or so, uh, I don't know, like just, completely lost and unfocused on what's actually good that they need a wake-up call of like a car crash or Mm -hmm. like this really horrific war yeah something horrible to to happen (laughs) in order for them to be like okay wow there actually are things that are important to me and there is a good and evil um yes which i think a lot of times maybe like school shootings or Mm. even 9-11 brings about this sense of oh my goodness there is evil and then you have this unity despite political Mm -hmm. disagreements because of this other evil that maybe wasn't visible before. And all of a sudden the horror brings you to this re- like realization of no, there actually is good and there's a good that's, that's worth fighting for. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Tolkien oh, says. Yeah. Well um, said. yeah so. And, and just so much is out of your control mm-hmm. and sort of reconciling yourself with that element of you, you think you have everything in control so much is not, but still you can live for, you can, you can live with that productive life and, yeah, so one of my other favorite quotes is Fulton Sheen, where he says, broken things are precious. A broken ship saved Paul during his, the shipwreck. Mm. A broken broken incense gives off, or broken, uh, yeah, incense is used in offerings. Broken flowers give off perfume. And so he said, sometimes the only way the good Lord can get into your heart is to break it. And so that kind of wow. ties into the Flannery thing. Yes. And then, so you kind of think, okay, so you, you might have that deadened heart and you might, through the grace of God, need that violent break. And sometimes I'll pray like, okay, Lord, if you need to break my heart, go right. ahead. <laughs> and maybe you can mold it like the pot, you know, like the clay heart and just warm it with your love. Mm-hmm. And anyways, but uh Pope Benedict, and he's building off of other theologians and philosophers, he also uses the imagery of a wound to talk about beauty. So he says there's this wound of beauty where Hmm. sometimes you experience something that's beautiful in a way that actually does cause you pain. 
and you feel this longing to discover the cause of that beauty. So, you know, you would seek out the composer or the artist or whatever, and you'd further delve into that artist's work or listening to that musician over and over again. And then hopefully it could lead you to the true cause of beauty, God himself. So I liked that image too, where Benedict, and again, it's, he's not alone in saying this, but sometimes the encounter with the beautiful acts as a wound that we then experience in a painful manner, which draws us to the cross where he says that's, that's beauty holding himself up there in love amidst mm. all the ugliness of sin and, and the, the, you know, the absolute devastation of a, yeah, of the souls lost, but, but there's beauty there in, in the crucifixion because it's pointing us towards our redemption. So that, that it's just sort of an interesting blend of beauty doesn't just have to be the pleasant sunshine mm. and daisies mm. and, you know, yeah, lovely, gentle things, but it, it can be this visceral reaction that gets you to recognize, oh, there's something outside of myself. Like there's something out of my control that's drawing me somewhere else. And I want to follow that. So whether it's, yeah, through this pain or through this longing, which I guess you could say too, is an element of pain. Hopefully it's orienting you outside of yourself towards, towards God. I'm Great time to end. Yeah, I have no. nothing to add. Yeah, yeah. true. Yeah. I'm not going to try to make that better. So. <laughs> right. No, truly. I mean, it, it is just, it, it's a... No, Brian, just... <laughs> Good. God works in very... A lot beautiful of ways. ways. In beautiful ways. So, yeah. yeah, that's that's all. The Valley of Tears, indeed. Dr. Sullivan, thank you for being on the podcast. This was awesome. This is Doing cool. Virtue. A Catholic podcast. A virtue is what we do. Cheers, everyone. Thank you.